New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to look at North American Indian shamanism. My guest is William S. Lyons. He received his doctoral degree in anthropology in 1970 from the University of Kansas. And pretty much since then, he has spent the last many decades participating in and studying traditional American Indian shamans and their ceremonies and their teachings. He is the author of the Encyclopedia of Native American Healing and author of the Encyclopedia of Native American Shamanism. In addition, he has published Black Elk, Sacred Ways of the Lakota, and most recently, Spirit Talkers, North American Indian Medicine Powers. This is a follow-up interview. We conducted an earlier one about the medicine powers. And uh, if you haven't seen that one, I highly recommend it. It's really a good introduction to this video. So, I'm linking to it right now in the upper right-hand corner. There's a hot link. If you click there, it'll take you to that interview. And now, this interview, of course, is uh, conducted via the internet since we're still in the pandemic lockdown phase. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you much. It's also a pleasure for me as well. So, we're going to probe a little more deeply into the nature of uh, the North American Indian traditions that you've been exploring for uh, so many decades. One fact uh, struck me as quite interesting that you report in your book, which is a, a ritual that seemed to be quite common throughout North America, uh, and it was called the, the Shaking Tent. Yes. Can you describe that? Originated in the uh, kind of northeastern part of North America, up in Canada, even, I believe. And basically, uh, they put up a, a teepee, not a tent, usually, it's more like a teepee that the shaman goes into and conducts a ceremony. And when he goes into this uh, teepee, of course, he calls his helping spirits in, and they come in through the top of the teepee, and when they do so, uh, the teepee starts shaking all over. And the teepee usually continues to shake until they, you know, leave. They go out the top of the teepee. And uh, during that time, the participants will hear all sorts of noises and sounds and voices and different people talking and so forth coming from the teepee. So it's a, um, I kind of class it as one of the more active North American ceremonies. And somehow it spread from uh, the, the northern Great Lakes region or, or the Canadian region. Westward. And it also moves southward. So uh, I'm trying to remember the furthest extent it went. It seems like it went into Minnesota, 
maybe even south of there. But, uh, of course, in modern times, where there's more communication and travel, uh, quite often people who learn or obtain a uh, ceremony like that can be from South America. And they can go back to South America and set up a, a tent or a teepee, and then when the spirits come in, it'll violently shake. So, you know, it used to just be from neighbor to neighbor talking, but now we have jets and whatever, and we get all around the planet. Uh, I know you compare the uh, shamanistic traditions of, of Siberia with those in North America, and as, as best I can tell, there's not necessarily a lot of difference. I mean, the fundamentals remain the same, and that is certainly what uh, Michael Horner did. You know, his whole uh, push for shamanism was to, you know, get to the core. And he called it core shamanism. And yes, those cores that he had in his court and still has in his courses, those cores you'll find in any shamanic ceremony around the world. So yeah, at the, at the very base, they're all pretty much the same. And they they operate pretty much the same. I mean, the spirits are just as, as uh, strict in one area as they are in another. Well, I'm under the impression, however, that the, the shaking teepee or the shaking tent ritual uh, was not reported in uh, Siberia or in other countries. It's, it's more peculiar to North America. That's true. No, I, you know, I don't know where, where else it's gone on the planet, but I just know it's, it's much further than it was, say, in 1900s. From up to 1900, it was all, you know, going from neighbor to neighbor to tribe to tribe to so forth like that. You report uh, one story of uh, a very uh, gifted woman who had shamanistic abilities. And as I recall, the, the tribe was starving and they needed her help. And uh, they appealed to her mother and uh, the mother came and, and gave permission for the daughter who had these talents to participate in a ritual. And the daughter instructed them to uh, make this teepee. And, and they had to do it with 12 different poles, as I recall. And each pole had to be made out of a different type of wood. And then they did that. Those 12 poles, there's going to be songs that go with each of those 12 poles. Uh, just aside from the fact they're from different wood. And what I call really good ceremonies, they spend a lot of time pre preparing for it. In fact, they spend more time preparing for a ceremony than in actually conducting the ceremony. And that's a, and my view is the more time they spend preparing for the ceremony, the more powerful that ceremony is likely to be. Because they've, they've put more heart into it in, in preparing for it. You emphasized in our previous interview how important the intelligence of the heart is in, in these rituals and practices, because certainly from the Western educated perspective, uh, they don't make a lot of sense using, you know, our conventional mechanistic way of thinking about the world. And that heart certainly doesn't work in a mechanistic way either. And 
all shamans know that they can only operate from their heart mode. They cannot be in their head mode and access these powers. And it's true that in the heart mode, some of those hearts are still rather black. And so you get these shamans who are doing bad things, basically. But uh, most of them end up with spirits who are good and help them in that way. So it's just important to completely follow every little instruction you get. And, and the instructions are usually different from shaman to shaman, from ritual to ritual. Uh, in the case, as I recall, of this lady, they constructed the tent and she went inside and she, she sort of got down on the ground in a very peculiar position with, I think, her ear to the ground. Uh, but she, she reported, as I recall, that when the tent started shaking, then she knew the power was there because the spirits had arrived. Those ceremonies were amazing. I really liked them. Let me go back to uh, a, a story that you recounted in our previous interview where uh, you had um, – a person had contacted you, I think, from Texas, as I recall, and they said they're, they're experiencing possession and they didn't know what to do and you invited them to meet with you and they went into a trance and while they were in the trance – a state they, they uh, began telling you about a past life you had had as a shaman, uh, I believe a Lakota shaman named Hollowhorn. That's true. That conversation went on for an hour, though. That spirit sat there talking in this different voice and slightly, you know, uh, altered way that, uh, in the end, I had a hard time understanding really what he was telling me a lot of times. I mean, I had, you know, this was a shocker to begin with, so to speak, <laughs> when he came in. And uh, I mentioned to you, I have a recording of that. So sometime if you want to hear that recording, we can set up and I can play that recording for you. I also have a transcript of what he said. If you would like to receive a transcript, I can mail that to you, too. Well, I'm interested in how that event impacted you. I remember when we talked about it last time, you said, you know, you're not a shaman in this lifetime, but maybe, I think that's the way you put it, maybe you've already been a shaman in a previous lifetime. So now, you know, you're, you're pursuing, you know, the Western path of anthropology and that's appropriate for now. But I get the impression that uh, something, you know, at least you were open to the possibility that you uh, had a past life as, as a well-known Lakota shaman. Yes. I was told by this spirit that I was a Lakota shaman named Hollowhorn in my last life. He lived during the 1800s. In this life, my goal has been to go to shamans, learn from shamans record shamanism or whatever I can do as an anthropologist. And when I set my mind to this by inviting Wallace Black Elk to come, you know, teach a summer course with me, which began the whole thing, 
you know, thereafter, I never had any problems going to ceremonies. I mean, when I would, would come up, when I would hear about a ceremony and go there to participate in it, you know, even if they didn't know me, they would let me come in. The most of them knew my name, you know, I, I'd give them my name and they'd let me in. So whatever purification is needed to do that and be in that state, I probably did a lot of it in the last lifetime and came here with part of that state still intact so that they, they know what they're getting, so to speak. <laughs> So it sounds like what you're saying is that when you heard and you were surprised to hear the idea that you had been hollowhorn in a, in a previous lifetime, at some level it rang true. I just had the feeling it's true, but I didn't like uh, going to some altered state in which I, oh yeah, I did that in that lifetime. I mean, some people can go, oh, they know 10, 15 past lifetimes, but. Once again, I stay out of that arena as much as possible to remain here. One of the interesting things one of your interviewers uh, said was a recent interview was that once you're once you're able to see, you can't unsee. So I'm staying on this side this time. I know what going over there is about. And all good shamans know what going over there is about. And my duty, it's like a duty I have, is to stay on this side. And I try that, you know, the best of my abilities. You know, the intellectual function, the scholarly function is a very important one. Uh, so uh, I, uh, in a certain way, I guess I'm doing something similar as, as a, a scholar of parapsychology and an interviewer of uh, people working in this realm. Uh, so one of the interesting things as I went through uh, your most recent book, Spirit Talkers, is uh, the role of the medicine man or the shaman in the context of the community, the, especially the early um, communities before there was a lot of contact with Westerners and, and when the tradition was, was stronger, these were people who, who didn't have access to all of the, the you know, forms of modern technology, which are now available to Native Americans just as much as anybody else. So they had to rely more on the skills of the shamans in, in medicine and hunting and even in warfare. Every individual in a tribe in those days sought a medicine power. And the shamans were the ones who had more medicine power and could do the more difficult healings, for example. Uh, or they could find lost persons, whatever. So that uh, that's the stronger... Uh, end of it and before I go off track here I just want to comment on your comment and I think you're doing exactly the same thing I'm doing 
by recording all these interviews. And I'm going to have a challenge with you, I guess, to see if you can record more interviews or if I have documented more Native American shamanic ceremonies. <laughs> You've made recordings of uh, many of the uh, ceremonies that you participated in. I recorded uh, usually only talks by Wallace. I really didn't go into the, you know, the ceremonies and, and make recordings during the ceremonies. And that certainly, you know, it would be allowed in a, in a UIPI ceremony if the uh, medicine man said it was okay and they put sage on the recording. And so I've seen other people do it in uh, ceremonies, but no, I... Again, I I was going there to be a participant, so my my job was to go there and pray. So I wasn't taking any machines in to make recordings. I didn't I didn't have any other agenda than praying for the patient. And then when you get most out of it as well. When you use the term medicine man, and that seems to be a, a translation of a Native American term, the, the word shaman itself uh, really originated in the uh, Siberian culture. And, and I, I presume it's not a word that one would find uh, in Native American communities. No, no, they don't. They don't know it. I mean, of course, most of them today know it, what it means, but they, you know, Medicine, you know, is a power to them. You know, to us, medicine is a, is a pill. And so they're two different, you know, concepts here. And if you think about it, in the, you know, old days, they had these guys going around wagons. They were medicine men selling medicines. And they were pretty much quacks. <laughs> but... You know, their understanding of medicine simply means it's a power. So they're power men is what they're called, really. Well, I think on occasion, though, you distinguish, and, and I don't know if this is a term that comes out of native culture or if it's sort of a projection by anthropologists, but is, is there a distinction, let's say, between sorcery and shamanism? Shamanism is the whole bag of worms. Sorcery is one of the little small bags in the big bag of worms. And basically, I told you, I said, you know, when they go into the heart, some of them still, some of these shamans stay attached to their head in bad ways. So <clears throat> those are the guys that do sorcery. And they're way, way down there as far as population-wise. They're a sure minority because, you know, the people didn't like them. And usually would run them out. So they kind of had to even be secretive to do their work. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there's still some hanging around today. Well, I would imagine that, that some of the skills of a sorcerer could become quite useful, let's say, if you're hunting. That would be a different, a different uh, point of view. I mean, sorcerers wouldn't use it to go and find food. 
thereby definition, use it to do bad things. So you would have, you know, men who had the power of locating game or really being able to shoot straight or whatever to get game. But, uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think medicine, medicine men, they don't, they don't use their powers in a sense for their own, you know, needs. And they just pretty much do the ceremonies that their spirits have taught them or their grandfather taught them maybe to do the Anippi and he knows all the Anippi songs. And yeah, you can be taught the ceremony by a lineage. And if you do it right, the spirits are going to come in, you know, so, you know, that's just the way it is. You did uh, talk about uh, one account of a uh, a shaman who seemed to have the ability to cause a, a live animal, uh, even a mountain lion, as I recall, to just drop dead in its tracks. Yes. Yep. And they did that. But again, it wasn't hunting for food. It was for evil purposes. They wanted that you know, mountain lion skin for one of their rituals or ceremonies or whatever, that kind of thing. Or they were, you know, being paid to do it. There were white traders that wanted to see it happen and saw it happen. And the guy got 50 bucks, whatever. But it's just, you know, that kind of mealy mouse stuff that goes on down there at the bottom. Well, with regard, let's say, to hunting. Uh, which seemed to be an important activity for, for Native American people. They were hunters. Uh, I'm under the impression that uh, the, the shaman participated uh, in many hunting activities from beginning to end. There was the purification at the, at the beginning and also rituals after the hunt to sort of thank the animal spirit for having given up uh, the body for the, the purpose of nurturing the tribe. Yeah, that's their that's their love of nature. That's their seeing themselves being the you know caretakers of this planet, and they certainly begin a hunt with prayers, offerings, so forth. And during the during the hunt, which may take five or six days of traveling, the shamans there praying, maybe running a sweat lodge every night. Those kind of things. And so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a journey of prayer is what it is to them. So the ceremony, that's the way it manifests then. It manifests in all these, you know, things you see beforehand. And like you said, afterwards, there's these, you know, ceremonies and songs and stuff they sing. And it's part of, it's a ritual in a sense. And a really good one. <laughs> Well, I found the, really the most fascinating chapter of your book had to do with, I think the chapter was titled, uh, uh, The First Men on the Moon, and the idea that shamans had the ability to fly, and by that you meant two kinds of flying, both uh, out-of-body uh, flying and, and flights in the body. Yes, yes, they could. I think you call that translocation, right? Is that bilocation? It would be one example, uh, but but I think you're referring to something that might be more akin to levitation. 
I don't know about that because the, the travel is, is so fast. It's instant, you know? And so I think it's, it's more of the state of consciousness that does that than, than, uh, anything that would be really known as levitation. I mean, yes, the shaman can levitate up or down or whatever, but for going long distances, uh, they use this other mode and it's quick. Much more akin than to uh, parapsychological accounts of bilocation, which is, uh, you know, where the physical body is in one location, but people at a distant location can report interacting with, with that individual. But there are parapsychological accounts of uh, levitation as, as well. Or tied up. They're tied up in the Uwippi ceremony, for example, and laid face down on a better sage. But you do report many examples where they seem to be able, like uh, uh, one that I recall was in uh, the um, an Alaska, a native Alaskan shaman uh, was asked to locate a uh, uh, the son of uh, one of his friends had gone off on a, uh, a journey to, to do some trading and hadn't shown up, hadn't returned. And so the shaman was asked to go find out what happened to that son. He's quite a way south on an island because they were actually going between islands, all these islands up there and living on them and so forth. And he went down and they were in an igloo. His son or, was in there or and, you know, he rubbed over the ice window and he could see him in there. So he went down and saw him and then came back. So I don't, you know, I don't know what that is because they didn't see him looking through the window. But he saw them or saw, you know, that the missing person was there and went back and said, he's doing fine. <laughs> And and in other instances, if if hunting is difficult, I recall uh, stories you report where the shamans would uh, uh, go. In, I think go into a trance state and report. You know which way to go, where the game could be found. Yeah, it's like uh, you go on the hunt and you do everything right, but it doesn't work. Well, you just don't go home with your head down between your legs. What you do is you do more ceremonies to try to make it work. And that's, you know, again, that's why they bring a shaman along, because he can do the heavy-duty ceremonies that can make it work again. <laughs> so, yeah, the shaman could go and, and tell them where the, where the game are in a, in a crisis situation where, you know, they've been looking for 10 days and haven't found them. Now, the training of shamans seems uh, to differ uh, from from time to time. And in some instances, you talk about the shamans get initiated by other shamans. And in other instances, it seems as if they get initiated by the spirits. I think every tribe had its own kind of means of doing that. I mean, I was quite surprised that there were so many variations of that, you know, kind of initiation or process but uh you know it might not have been so much a, a ceremony that actually initiated it is a, a ceremony of thank you for you know bringing it or whatever 
and uh, they were they were quite unique. I think each tribe had their own little, you know, way of doing that. I have the impression that uh, the uh, shamans of one tribe would also recognize the shamans of other tribes. That it wasn't exactly exclusive. That that they seemed to have an understanding of each other. I think they did a lot of telepathic communication back and forth, actually. And uh, if you were really, really good at, at shamanism, you you probably were in contact with others who were really good. As I recall now, the, uh, occasionally they would get together uh, for the purpose of, of having contests or demonstrations of shamanic power. So, so these abilities seem to travel from tribe to tribe, like as we described earlier, the shaking teepee ritual. Daily newspaper was pretty much about what's going on with the powers, who got a new one, who, who lost theirs, that kind of thing is, is what I think the talk was about during the day. And uh, so these powers come and go, uh, and the shamans, they... You know, they can have more power, or they do have more power. And I have the feeling that a lot of the shamans in a locality were communicating through telepathy. There were telepathic communications. And, uh, and even, you know, flights to each other. And, you know, I think they got around of who who was doing you know medicine and who wasn't each each year it might change but they they kept abreast of that and then they had you know these power displays to kind of show who had the the most oomph and uh, that kind of thing that wasn't common though that uh, I think was more in the kind of the central central north central plains area if I remember right but that's not a widespread thing. So be, because I gather, for the most part, the powers were reserved for times when when people were really in need. Like if the tribe was starving, uh, that's when the shaman would be called upon. Well, the shaman would definitely be called upon if they're starving. But no, I don't think uh, I don't think they had to be called in a sense in an emer just to use their powers in an emergency. Like there was this one woman, uh, I think she was a Pomo, who could go out at any time of year and bring back a basket full of fresh acorns. So she would go out in the, you know, February or March and come back with a bag of fresh acorns. And uh, she did it, you know, she did it all the time. It wasn't just, you know, because it was an emergency. But in that case, it was. It was a winter time, and she used just to go do that in the winter time and whatever. But in the summer, that was her daily duty: <laughs> is to use that fire and go out and gather the acorns and bring them back. I, and I know you did mention uh, to begin with that in in those native cultures, everybody uh, had some degree of uh, medicine power. If they didn't have it, they sure wanted it, and <laughs> most of them were doing something about it. So there was there was a lot of vision questing going on in those days. 
I mean, in the summer, there was probably one a week that, you know, four or five people weren't out on vision class. Four-day vision class. I know you told me that you had also participated in in a vision quest in which you were uh, buried in in some kind of a pit, and then a uh, a tarp or some a skin or something was put on top, and you spent I think you told me a few days in that uh, condition. Most people would go do that to get a power, and that wasn't my thing. I was just doing it as a as a thank you. Out of gratitude. It was just a uh, show of gratitude on my part. So I wasn't expecting to come out with any power to begin with. And uh, <laughs> what I did come out with was a real lot of light in my body. <laughs> uh, there's an interesting story in your book of a shaman who is put into a pit like that. And he's in the pit. And suddenly he notices like a, a little man in the pit. And uh, it's, the description seems like an, a gnome or an elf or, or something like that, that uh, uh, who says, well, why are you here to the shaman? The shaman says, well, the people put me down here because they are in need. And uh, uh, the little man does some, I don't know, so, performs some sort of ritual. And the next thing you know, the shaman is uh, some distance away from the pit in uh, in the ceremonial hall with the other people. That's... Uh Again, go in one place and come out another place, and that that's a often performed feat of shaman, so to speak. I mean, there's also accounts in the book about uh, putting him in a uh, kind of a nippy shape and setting it on fire, and he comes out, comes down, walking down the road towards where you are in a few minutes. So yes, they they know how to get around that way. <laughs> Yeah, so that's not by location that, or, or levitation either. It might be something more akin to teleportation. Whatever it's called, it's pretty crazy <laughs> that they can do that. That's all. Well, I thought probably the most remarkable finding that you report on in your book is the idea that the more that Native Americans interacted with uh, Westerners, uh, the more their powers seemed to diminish. Yeah, because the, the interaction with the Western medicine was to drive those all out of them. It was devil worship, you know. And, you know, because they were, you know, Christian and Catholic and so forth that were out there on the frontier like that. They were the first ones to go in. And they started that whole, you know, agenda, so to speak, because it, you know, wasn't room for two guys with power there. They wanted it all. That's just the way they always operate wherever they go. So, you know, on one level, they'd done it everywhere else they had gone. So we should have, you know, known it was going to happen. But the Indians didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world. And so... You know, most of them were quite big-hearted and took them in until the word got around. But these, you know, were not really nice dudes. Well, it it does suggest that the um, 
the power, the medicine power is, uh, to some degree, it's generated in, in the whole community, that when the whole community subscribes to it, it's stronger. And as the belief of uh, the community wanes, the power itself wanes. Yep. We know that even from, from ceremony. But you don't want somebody to come in ceremony full of doubt. Because their consciousness, their conscious doubt, weakens the possibility of the ceremony being successful. So if you're a really good medicine man or woman, you'll, you know, you'll spot those individuals in your ceremony and, and get them out. And yes, in a tribe where everybody was 100% behind, you better believe they had really powerful ceremonies that worked powerful things that did powerful altering of this movie we're in. It's interesting to me because in parapsychology, one of the most consistent effects that, that comes up in laboratory research, it's called the sheep-goat effect. Sheep are people who believe they can uh, do uh, successful ESP and goats are people who, who don't believe they can do it. And the results uh, seem to be exactly that. If you believe you can, you can. If you believe you can't, you can't. And in fact, it's even so strong that people who believe they can't often score a highly successful uh, psi missing, or even more interestingly, their scores are closer and closer to chance, closer to the mean average than, than you would expect by chance alone. Interesting. Now, I didn't know that went on with those surveys like that. I, that, that that's the, the behavior displayed characters of the, you know, doubters. I didn't know that. That's interesting. All right. So it would seem to me as a parapsychologist that the kind of findings that you're reporting are uh, on the one hand consistent with what we see in the laboratory, but also uh, consistent with some of the, the strongest effects that get reported elsewhere uh, in, in the literature, for example, of the lives of the Catholic saints, uh, where very unusual uh, powers are reported as well. Uh, parapsychologists, because of their scientific allegiance, often have a tendency to dismiss those reports. I think there are too many of them. We have to pay more attention to the more bizarre, the, the more unusual reports. My book makes it really clear <laughs> that there are a lot more accounts of this going on, or were a lot more accounts of this going on in North America than we ever thought. And, you know, I'm, I just scratched the surface of what was recorded. What was recorded was one one hundredth, probably, of what was really going on every day out there. So I don't think people really you know, grasp how powerful this North America was in terms of medicine powers. Well, suppose people did start to grasp it. If, if a, a large community of people were to accept the sorts of uh, examples that you offer over and over and over again in your book, how do you think that would change our culture today? I think the more you, you get in tune with it all and the more you're able to go with it, 
the more synchronicity happens in your life. So that at one point, when you're in there really deep, you're well taken care of by the, by the, by the way this universe materializes around you. I mean, when they talk about lives of saints, they talk about all the miracles of the saints. I like to see a book on all the synchronicities they experience every day. <laughs> Bill Lyon, it's been once again a great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I really appreciate the uh, lifetime that you have spent documenting uh, these important uh, lost abilities that I think are the birthright of all human beings. So, thank you so much for being with me. Well, thank you especially, again, for another invitation to join you. And, uh, you know, we're on the same path here as far as, you know, trying to make people understand the reality that we live in. And I want to thank you for your many, many interviews because they, they are so vitally important also to what needs to be done to make changes happen here. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.